So John's going to expose the, the subtlety of false Christianity, erroneous claims within the church, by pointing to its glaring contradictions. So we're going to see this morning, he's got, he makes four claims in chapter 1, he makes three claims in chapter 1, he makes a fourth one in chapter 4. And I might be a little more teachy this morning than preachy maybe, but I, I'm going to walk through the details and kind of unfold this to the best of my ability and, and see the exhortation he gives. Because with every false claim that he sees within the church, he'll bring an answer to that. And I want to exhort us in that regard. He'll say, he'll start these claims by saying, if we say, evidence the fact that he's something that they're either hearing within the body and experiencing within the church. So I know that's kind of a long introduction, but I kind of needed to, to lay that groundwork before we, we look at the different claims that are made and his response to it. So look at verse 5, and look, so we'll, we'll follow the text here. It's beginning in verse 5, where he lays the, this presuppositional truth in verse 5 that he'll answer in verses 6 through, 6 through 10 in the first part of chapter 2. He says, now this is a message which we have heard from him and declare to you, and God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. I'm just going to throw the notes up here. I'm not going to, I'll walk through, I don't want to be distracted too much by this clicker, but I tried to just put up there some of the claims that are made. I put 1A, and you'll see 1A and 1B, because 1A is a claim, and 1B is the response he's going to make to that false claim. Verse 6, we see the first claim. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Some would claim that they could have fellowship with God and yet live the life they want to live and the way they want to live that life and yet still claim to have fellowship with God. The emphasis here is in the word fellowship. It begins a phrase. In the Greek, when you put the word up front, is to bring emphasis to it. So the emphasis he's bringing to it here is the notion of fellowship and their perceived understanding of fellowship. There were people clearly within the body who claimed to have fellowship with God, but yet lived a life that was totally incompatible with that claim. Knowing that they were battling Gnosticism, knowing other passages we see in 1 John, we know that these, this, this statement here is incomplete. Some believed that they were in fellowship with God, but yet they denied Christ in a matter as well. So many were comfortable talking about God, but they squirm at the idea of talking about Christ. We see this in verse 3 earlier in the chapter, where he says, you know, John speaks of having fellowship with what? With the Father and with the Son. Now that's specific because a little bit later on, these men were acknowledging the claim that they were making is that we have fellowship with God, and in that he says fellowship with God, but yet you walk in the life, they were not acknowledging, they were omitting Christ. Chapter 2, verse 22, as a matter of fact, John goes on to say, and that's, this is kind of the complexity of First John, is that so much is intertwined in what he's saying. There's so many pieces tied to it. Again, I'm going to try to bring some of that to bear in this text. Chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So you have some in their midst who acknowledge a notion of God and notice I've got fellowship with God, but they knew nothing of a fellowship and a walk with Christ. Even today, some might claim to have a fellowship with God, but a, a genuine believer will have a walk with Christ, and through him will have fellowship with the Father. There, there are many religious people in the world, 
who claim to know God. I've had many debates with people who claim to know God but do nothing of the Son. Fellowship is not just knowledge, but fellowship is practice. Again, he's beginning with the notion of fellowship here, and he grows and builds on that. He's going to contrast knowledge that's been received on one end and the walk on the other end that's not compatible with the knowledge that's been received. Some believe that they were spiritual because of what they knew, but they did not care about the walk that they lived. And a genuine believer is spiritual not because of the truth they know, but, that they, but because of the truth they live. You know, just imagine if, if John was speaking to the church today. We're dealing today with the same, the same things that he was struggling with then as people in the midst of the body that made claims that they never lived. And these people that believed they were spiritual, they claimed to have fellowship with God, but the lives they lived were in direct opposition, totally contrary to what they claimed. And their claims were incomplete at that. There's an integrity gap here. I know Mark Hager likes to use that term in his counseling. I like that. There's that integrity gap between the what we claim to, to believe in and the lives that we live. Now, let's, let's be transparent here. We all have integrity gaps. And we all, at times, claim one thing that we don't live. One thing about this morning, I thought I was getting ready to say something about Valentine's Day. I'm thinking, boy, I've got to be careful what I say about Valentine's Day. If my kids and my wife's going to hold me to it. So, we're all, we all fall short of what we would want to be but we have a desire and a passion to submit to it and grow in it. These men were not even recognizing that discrepancy. They did not even recognize that there was a gap there that they needed to, to acknowledge. They had no problems living on Sunday, coming to church on Sunday, and that sufficed to fill their spiritual uh, feel on Sunday morning, but the rest of the week they lived for the devil the rest of the time. You know, there are many people who have no problem living their lives that way. They see no connection between the way they live their life on Monday and what they just proclaimed and sang Sunday morning. John addresses that. Why? Because he's passionate about truth. He's passionate about seeing believers live that truth out in a real and genuine way. Fellowship is walking, he says, fellowship is walking in light and not in darkness. If you go back to the Gospel of John, he'll describe a number of examples of what it means to to walk. Walk in light is not walking in ease or comfort or convenience. In John chapter 6, verse 66, when my wife saw my notes, she double-checked because she said John 666 didn't sound right, but it is accurate. John describes those who, claiming to be disciples, did not receive the fullness of the teaching decided to do what? Decided to walk away. And several times in Christ's ministry, there were disciples that followed Christ, claiming we want to follow you, we want to learn from you, teach us. But when that teaching became uncomfortable, when that teaching became too personal, they walked away. And Christ says, okay, disciples, now here we are. Back to us now. And there were times where he deliberately wanted those disciples to quit following because they were confusing others by claiming things that they were not willing to live by. 
I like John's description of walking in light as well, knowing where you're going. And John, I'm just going to bring some passage to bear here. John 8, he talks about those who follow Christ shall not walk in darkness. John 11, he talks about the gospel of John. He says they will not stumble. John 12, he says those who walk in darkness don't know where they're going. But in 1 John, in chapter 2, he says those, he, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness does what? He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. A genuine believer walks in the light of his word and he knows where he's going. He knows what he's doing and he knows what purposes God has for him. He lives his life in light of that light. So with this, with this false claim that is made in the first part here in verse 6, John gives an answer to that in verse 7. And you're going to find, and we'll see this in the, in the third example, we'll see that there's a consistent response that brings us back to the gospel. So in verse 7, he answers this first false claim. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walking should be walking from darkness to light. One of the, the, the joys of being in ministry, and I, I think back at the years of uh, ministry in France, you know the, the, the joy of seeing someone come to know the Lord? One of the precious examples I have that I just remember going to a, a lady in our church, her mother was dying. She asked me to go talk to her on her deathbed. I wasn't even sure she could really understand it and had clarity. I was sharing the gospel with her, and I asked her if she understood this. I tried to get her to, to engage, but she was, I think, at that point already under the meds and not very clear. And next thing you know, I hear behind the other curtain, I want to receive Christ. And someone else had been listening to the whole presentation, and I thought I was addressing the one person, and God was over here. I can't tell you many examples we've seen of the gospel bringing someone that was once in darkness and, and seeing the light of Christ and the joy of it. But there's, there's one joy that surpasses that. And John knows it here. And John brings it to bear here is the joy of walking in truth. Because I know when I see someone come to know Christ and they make that proclamation, they make that claim that we're going to go, I, I see the light and I, I confess my sins before the God and I come to him, that will be challenged at what point, and the measure of their faith is going to be in proportion to how they respond to adversity and how they're going to walk as a disciple in truth. And so with that first sign of adversity, I watch and see, are they going to, are they going to claim Christ? Are they going to walk in truth? Or are they going to go back to walking in darkness and not seeing the difference? And I would like to say that every time I've seen someone proclaim Christ, that they walked in truth, but that's not the case. Sometimes a year later, sometimes a year and a half later, something happens, there's a struggle, there's a battle. And I hear someone say, well, if that's what it's like being a Christian, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought you claimed to be one. Well, if that's what Christianity is like, I don't have anything to do with it. And at that moment, they broke away from the claim that they made, and they walked away from the light that they proclaimed, that they embraced And third John, and this is one passage I really would like to be able to, to, to preach on one day. And I started here in my studies for this morning. In third John, verse 2, 
and I can, every, every shepherd can relate to this. He says, Beloved, I pray, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as what? Just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. I tell you, I, I, it's exciting when you come to God's house and we sing together, we worship together. It's exciting to know that we share a common bond in Christ. But what's really exciting is that we walk together in truth. What's really exciting is that when truth comes to bear in your life and that light shines in the darkness of your heart, that you let it fulfill the task that it is called to do and you submit to it gloriously, wonderfully, because of your love for Christ, because of your love of your Savior, and you live in walk. You walk in that life. That's, there's no greater joy. There's nothing more exciting than that. And John feels that. So if, if you go to the Gospel of John, he talks about Christ as our salvation, but in the Epistle of John, he talks about the outworking of that in the believer's life. Walking as a way of life. Walking is in the present tense here. It's a habitual walking. It's not something sporadic. It's not an anomaly. It's not walking today, but it's not it's ups and downs. It's not this roller coaster ride. It's this consistency day in and day out. And yes, we'll stumble and we'll get back up. And yes, there'll be days where we don't feel we're in a word. And other days we fall. And he'll address that a little bit later in, in the third question, as a matter of fact. But there is this growth and there's this consistent growth pattern in their life. See, those who claim Christ but don't know Christ but claim a form of religiosity, they, they have this, they're, they're here today and gone tomorrow. They're very sporadic in their faith. They're very inconsistent. But a genuine believer will develop this consistency. He's calling, about, he's calling on them to, to walk in this life. He gives another expression here, walking in the light. In walk, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, there's a contrast here that he makes, because previously in verse 5, he says God is the light. But in verse 7, he said God is in the light. We see the oneness and the bond between one walking in the light and the light itself. Perhaps this verse is worded this way, not only because it's God's nature to be light, but he is also the light that we are called to follow and to pursue. Something else we see described in this verse that we might not think is, we might not have written it this way if we had to write it. He says we have fellowship with what? With one another. We have fellowship with one another. Now, you would think that the proper response was as if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we'll have fellowship with Christ. But he's going to pursue a subject here that we'll see through this, and then later on in chapter 4. On the contrary, he, he, he takes this. He doesn't say that we have fellowship with him. He speaks to having fellowship with believers. It's consistent with what he said in verse 3. when He talks about them having fellowship with us. He has this consistency in addressing here the inconsistencies of the body. Clearly, he's addressing the issue that they're making the claim to follow God or they're making a the claim to have fellowship with God, but they are not in fellowship one with another. He said that is not possible. One who walks in the light has fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and with other believers. 
He underscores the fact that salvation is not an individual experience. It's an experience that we gather from the body of Christ as we are on this same journey together. Then he talks about walking in forgiveness. The blood of Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This statement is familiar to the believers already. John had already brought clarity to this, that the basis of forgiveness is the atoning death of Christ. Look at the second statement. The second false claim in verses 8 and verses 9. He say if we have if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now you're going to see the nuance between 8 and 9 and then a little bit later we're going to talk about um, having no sins. So there's a singular use here and then there's a plural verse afterwards and I like to just unfold that a little bit as well. But basically the claim that we can live the life without feeling guilty about sin. You hear people talk about that when we talk about sin. Whether, hey, nobody's perfect. I mean, we're all sinners. So, I mean, we don't want to pinpoint individual sins, but hey, we acknowledge we're all sinners. In verse 8, we see different, different aspects of sin. First, we see the guilt of sin. These men would claim that they don't, it's in response to the previous verse, verse 7, right? These men would claim that there's no need for cleansing because they have no sin. That's not that they haven't had sins, plural, but there's nothing for them to be guilty about. It would seem that John is pointing their sins out, but they're being deceived and not seeing their own need for cleansing. They carry no guilt for their own action. I tell you, it's hard when you're trying to convince someone of wrongdoing and they don't feel guilty. <laughs> you ever try to convince a child about he did something wrong and they're like, I, I don't get it. What did I do wrong? No guilt. Nothing that Pricksman says, you know, that was wrong. You know also the beauty when you see a child feel guilty? Sometimes as parents, we want to remove that guilt. Don't remove that guilt. Let them feel the weight of the sin and respond appropriately to it. Don't try to excuse it and say, well, don't, eh, don't worry about it. No, no, let them feel that so they can respond and there's an appropriate response to that. The, the claim that these men were making within the church, that they had no guilt of sin. They didn't see why they felt they would need cleansing. We see the deceit of sin in this passage. Here again, the, the phrase begins with the word ourselves. Again, the, the Greek is going to start with the word to bring emphasis to it. So he's going to bring ourselves deceived. The point is that it's our own blindness to truth that causes us to sin and be deceived. It's our own sinful desires that causes us to be deceived. You ever heard someone talk about being, you know, the sin? Well, that wasn't, my, I mean, that wasn't my fault. Just bad circumstances. If that coach wouldn't have been unfair, if that teacher wouldn't have been rude, if, that, if they hadn't cut me off, whatever it is, we, we, we know how to, to shift responsibility. He says, ourselves, was we're deceived. And these people that did not acknowledge any responsibility, any guilt for sin, they're blinded and they're, they're deceived. And we're going to see a progression. As we walk through this, we're going to see a progression in this. The deceit of sin and then the deaths of sin. We see a progression of guilt. They went in verse 6 to lying, to being deceived in verse 8. They went to being, in verse 6, not practicing truth. Verse 8, he says what? Not having the truth. We see this progression in the deaths of sin. Sin will only take you deeper and deeper in the pits of darkness. 
And the more one ignores truth that is given, the less truth is seen and understood. The more lies we believe, the more deceived we become. And John knows this, so he's exhorting believers, you, you need to take hold of this truth, you need to walk in truth, and yet not... Because if you don't acknowledge it, you can just continue going deeper and deeper. And the third accusation you'll find afterwards is what? You've made God a liar. He goes to that. We see the digression and their response to truth and not walking in truth. It's a dangerous place to be for someone who claims to know God, who's a recipient of truth, to ignore that truth. I'm very cautious in giving people truth that they're not willing to receive. Because I compound the problem. Because now I'm hardening them even more to the truth. And if they're not receptive, I cannot give them more to build on, more to feed on, more to enlighten them, because they've already hardened themselves. I already said, well, I don't see the need for it here. Well, if I pile on over here more to it, I'm going to add to their guilt and add to the weight. And honestly, it will condemn them and damn them more. So I'm, I'm cautious and careful with that. And we see also the, the twofold dangers that he's presenting here. The twofold dangers of sin. One is being self-deceived, not living in truth. The other one that he brings out in chapter 2 is being self-deceived and deceiving others. And here's why John is so passionate about this for the church. In chapter 2, verse 26... He describes those who are deceiving others and the danger that those who are being deceived are themselves now deceiving others. What a danger. What a cause to take this seriously. Because those within the body who make the claims to know the truth and don't live the truth are drawing others into the same thought process and the same erroneous life of thinking it's okay to live this way. It's okay to live my life this way. And the Bible really is just giving, giving us suggestions to live by. And be good to, but don't, don't, don't be overzealous. Don't be a fanatic. And that same deceived person in chapter 2, he says, is deceiving others. So John is, John is concerned. There is something to be concerned about here. And he takes it very seriously because of that. Look at the response. Confession. And this is... This is just the beauty of verse 9. That being said, he says what? If we confess our sins, confession opens our eyes to the truth. The inexplicable blessing of confession. I mean, you could just take this one verse and unfold it, unpack it, and you'll never get to the depths of it. Look what confession leads to. His faithfulness, his justice, his forgiveness. He makes it right. He restores. You go from ignoring truth, denying truth, denying sin, denying the need for cleansing, and the consequences of it is this blindness, walk in the darkness, but the moment, the answer to it here, he says the moment you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this flood of who God is and the atoning work pours into our lives. What a blessing that God allows us to confess. What a blessing he has not let us 
remain in the pit of despair, in the darkness of our thoughts, but he brought the light to bear. And he allows us to come before him and confess. And we see here the, the spirit of confession. Confession is in a, in a present tense, which means there's a, a continual confession. There's a, a contrite spirit in the part of a genuine believer that lives in the spirit of confession. We see here the plural form of sins, which seem to indicate that if we confess our, our sins, indicate that there are specific sins in mind in this passage. You know, it's not, it's not difficult to convince someone that they have a sin nature because we're all sinners, but it's a lot more difficult for someone to confess their sins. It's much easier for someone to say, well, yeah, we're, 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 no one's perfect. Oh, you're right. Now, let me tell you, why don't you tell me how you're not perfect? Oh, well, we're all sinners. Well, how have you sinned and transgressed? And all of a sudden, it becomes very very uncomfortable, but a genuine believer will live and he'll walk in light of a spirit of confession, willing to confess and admit to his own shortcomings, his own sins, confessing them before each other and before the one who is faithful, before the one who is just to forgive us our sins. Look at the third claim he makes, the third false claim in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I've got nothing to confess. I'm just glad I'm not like those sinners. As with the previous claim, there's a connection between what he says here, between this third claim, we have not sinned, and the previous one, he says, we have no sin. We see this digression of sin, and the mind of man digresses here. Though the claims seem similar in nature, what we found in verse 8 Versus what we find here, we see the, a sharp response from John. In verse 6, the men were accused of lying. In verse 8, they were accused of being deceived. Now in verse 10, they're accused of making God a liar. Not only did they not recognize any guilt for sin they may have committed, they don't frankly recognize they've done anything wrong to begin with. And in doing so, they've condemned themselves. They've made God a liar. And and John just progressively is more aggressive and more direct in his accusations with these false claims. But he gives a response in chapter 2, in the first two verses. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if, you, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Yes, we will sin. But when we do, we'll have an advocate before the Father. As if, as if with the other two claims that are made, the, he gets personal here in the first part of verse 1. He makes like a, a pause between the verse 2, which is his answer, and verse 1. And in verse 1, he pauses and says, My children, in terms of endearment here, he'll use the term beloved throughout the text as well. 
he presents two things to his dear children. One, there's the blessing of justification. And, and here, here's the beauty of all three of his answers to these false claims are found here. Look what he says in verse 7. He says what? His first answer says, his son cleanses us from all sin. His response to the second question says, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And his response to the third false claim says what? That he himself is a propitiation for our sins. What's the, common, the commonality between his three answers is the gospel of Jesus Christ. My friends, that's still the answer we have to give to every false claim. It's the gospel of Christ. The gospel is always at the heart of every answer. He presents here also the, the blessing of sanctification. If anyone should sin, understandably so, not, we're not going to achieve sinless perfection on this earth. We're in this process of sanctification. We're set apart, and we're in the process of walking in truth. And as the truth is revealed, our shapes, our, mold, our, our lives rather, are shaped and molded in His image. And we have this continual walk. And He He acknowledges that here and recognizes the, the joy and the beauty of sanctification. And when we do, He says, "What we have an advocate before the Father." The atoning work and death of Christ is not only the basis of our cleansing and forgiveness of sin, it is also the grounds for our ongoing, ongoing sanctification. Chapter 4, so if you turn there with me, chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, he comes back here to, to make the same claim, the same form of claim he made in these first, three, first few verses. So remember, we're talking about one letter here. We're only a few chapters, you know, we're only a few minutes later reading this letter. And now they're hearing him say in chapter 4, verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Now, of course, for the reader, it's right away reminiscent of what he had just said in the first time. So they're expecting the same thing he did in the beginning of the letter, a false claim and a rebuttal or an answer to that false claim. The context here is a little bit different. I'm going to build up to it a little bit with the time that we have. But the, the, the fact, that the claim that someone can make that I love God, but I just can't stand. Put somebody else in that space right there for you. The idea that somehow I can love God but hate my brother. Now, most people say, well, I don't really hate them. I just can't be around them. It's not that I hate them. It's just that they just annoy me. It's not that, I, it's not that I, I hate them, it's just that I'm just better off, I just don't want to talk to them again. And he's just going, in the few verses that precede this, and we're going to look at it briefly, he, he, he introduces love. And then he brings this false claim that some were making in the church, that I love God, but yet they were hating their brothers and did not have fellowship with one another. If you were to walk through the context, and just look at the chapter 4 with me. If you were to walk through, and I just, there, you, you can make a series of sermons just out of this portion. The, the, the portion of this text begins really in, in verse 7 of chapter 4, 
and really leads probably through verse 5 of chapter 5. So that's a portion we're dealing with here where he brings this statement in. And he's been instructing them on love. Verse 7, he says, love one another. This is the third claim he's made to this, so they're familiar with this at this point, right? Love one another, verse 7. John is emphasizing this point. We're told God is light in verse 5. The preceptional claim in chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light. And from there, to love our brother is to walk in light. Chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. So the love of brother is to walk in light. And then in chapter 3, 11, 23, and then chapter 4, verse 7, he emphasizes then that loving your brother is walking in truth and walking in light. Verse 7, love is of God. We're told that God is identified as the origin of love. Love pours from the very nature of God. Verse 7, still, everyone who loves is born of God. I mean, he doesn't leave anything. To, you know, there, there's great clarity in what he is saying here. Even if it makes me feel uncomfortable at times and how this really plays out in my life, there's great clarity in the way he describes this. Love is one another. Love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God. Love is part of God's nature, and the presence of love in one's life reveals my relationship with God. Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God. Absence of the evidence of a claim. You can make a claim, but that claim is invalidated by the way we live our lives. And then the pinnacle is in verse 8. Right? God is love. One cannot know God without being loving, for God is love. It permeates all that God does. All his activity is loving. And the great warning here might be for us that when, if we were ever to question the love of God, we attack the very nature of God. God is, love is not defined by the activities, even though he's going to manifest this, of course, through Christ, and he'll say this here. But it's in his very nature. And so the love of God is not abstract, right? It's manifest in verse 9 by sending his son into the world that we might live through him. We couldn't understand what it means for him to love us if it were not for that visible expression brought out in his son. Love is not defined by our love for God. Love is not defined by our love for God, but God's love for us. And as such, our love for God is not an adequate starting point to understand God's love. It begins with God. And the point he is making here is, so it is our basis for loving others. My love for others is not the adequate starting point for understanding what it means to love someone else. God is love. He's the starting point of love. So all my relationships that are to be loving, the starting point of that love is God himself and the nature of God himself that flows in and through me. And so then in verse 11, he walks through and says what? He says, if God, verse 11, he says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I know I'm walking through this quickly, but I want to just bring us to the verse 20. That he brings, and then his counterclaim or his answer to the false claim in verse 21. He says, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We have a moral, ethical, 
spiritual obligation. Because our loving actions towards others are a reflection of His loving actions towards us. You know, one might think that even here, that the manifestation of God's love means we should love Him in return, but that's not what he says. He's consistent in his argument here. Early on when he says, you know, walking in light means we should be reciprocate with him. He says, no, it's a reflection of our fellowship with others. Here he says the same thing about love. One might expect that we are called to love God in return for his love given to us, but here he emphasizes what? The emphasis, the emphasis given is on loving our brother and sister in return. So in our statement in verse 20, we see the expectation that as God's love is manifested through his Son, so should our love be manifested to others. And look at the response in verse 21. He says, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother. You notice how he went from verse 11 to verse 21. What does it say in verse 11? We ought to. Notice how he increases that thought in verse 21 by saying what? We must do. The thought here is not that one must love God in order to love one's sister, but rather that love of God and love of brother or sister are impossible to separate. You cannot say you love God and you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as a matter of fact, he, he, he piggybacks on this a little bit more. We could, push this, we could push this question just a little further. Because Matthew 22 tells us what? This is the command that they're accustomed to, right? Matthew 22 says you should love your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the second command is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. What does John do? John, the difference with John's instruction is that he takes the two separate commands and makes them one. So as Matthew describes two separate commands, John brings them down to one command. You know, at times we're... I mentioned earlier, at times we're... we're all nominal believers of sorts. We fall short. We are not what we would like to be. And if we're genuine believers, we're grieved in our own hearts because we want, to please, we want to be pleasing to him. We're not indifferent because we have the Holy Spirit living through us and we have a genuine relationship with Christ that brings about a spirit of confession that brings about a life and desire to be pleasing to him. Sometimes our walk doesn't match our talk. And perhaps today what the Lord would do is bring to our minds and our thoughts areas that we need to bridge that gap. Because a genuine believer will continually seek to conform his or her life to his truth, confess, repent, walk in the light of his word, Maybe this morning you're a believer, but you're just a believer in name only. You feel no guilt for any sin. I mean, what do you have to be guilty about? 
As a matter of fact, I don't think I've done anything wrong. Did I really have to fellowship with believers? I'm pretty happy. I'm kind, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of this loner personality, you know. COVID's not been bad. I enjoy being in the basement. That screen's my friend. But the genuine believer is going to be driven to walk in truth, not just with the Lord, but with other believers as well. Now, normally you would end, <clears throat> you'd begin a message perhaps on giving the objectives of, of a letter, but I want to look at these objectives now. And there's three objectives that John gives for writing this epistle. And now, given what we have seen, I want to read those three in light of that. The first one is found in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4. He says, These things we write to you that your joy may be full. Walking in truth brings joy to your life. A genuine believer finds joy in his walk with the Lord. A, a, a believer in name only, it will be burdensome. That's why he says a little bit later in 1 John 5, verse 3, he addresses that by saying that this is the love of God that keeps his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because if you don't know God, and you don't fellowship with him, his commandments will be burdensome. And 1 John speaks, John speaks to that in 1 John 5. But a genuine believer will find joy in his walk with the Lord. 1 John 2, verse 1, we see the, the second stated objective of this epistle. He says, These things we write to you what, that you may sin or that you may not sin. Sin no more. Walking in truth means walking in light and not in darkness. A genuine believer is going to live a life of confession while those who simply proclaim Christ will be continually justified, continually victimized, continually deceived. Are you walking in a spirit of confession before the Lord in all honesty, in all transparency? He already knows the condition of your heart. Do you? And the third stated objective is in 1 John 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. These are serious matters. This is not just temporary. This is not temporal. This is not just short-term. This is much greater than that, that you might know. These are serious matters. Walking in truth is evidence of our faith. I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know the present state of your mind. But may I encourage you to let the next step in your life be one of obedience. Perhaps God will just place a truth in your life that you know you need to submit to that you haven't. Submit to it. Confess. Let, that, let God's full response to that come to bear in your life. You need to let that truth of God transform your way of thinking, transform your way of feeling, and you'll discover over and over and over again, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's about him. It's about his glory and his alone. Are you closing a word of prayer this morning?
Father, I, I thank you as I walk through this text. And I see the response to every one of these claims. I find the beauty of the gospel. I find the beauty of your cleansing, the beauty of your forgiveness, the beauty of confession. The Lord, no doubt, in a congregation this size, there are people who are just living their lives, content, content with claiming to know God, but beyond that, have no desire to pursue walking in truth. Lord, would you open their eyes? May they not be deceived. May they see. And Lord, for us as believers, that as we desire, Lord, to know you, and we're grateful, Lord, we know that we fall short, and yet we come to you in a spirit, humble, confessing your name, confessing our lackings, but rejoicing in the God that is love, who atones for our sins, and in whom we find an advocate before the Father. We thank you, Lord, for your word. May it, Lord, bear truth into our hearts and minds. May it not just be left as, someone, as something to think about, but something to live by. In the name we pray. Amen.